Okay, I'm going to go ahead and open up y'all's Bibles. We're in Acts chapter 18 this week. Acts chapter 18. I'm, I just wanted to thank you guys for being faithful through the book of Acts. I know it's a very long book, um, actually one of the longest, in fact. And uh, it's kind of funny, I was telling Pastor Emilio, you know, when I started studying Acts, you know, I'm putting on my phone all the audio, you know, lessons so I can listen as I'm driving to work and stuff like that. And it's funny how often pastors and teachers start off teaching the book of Acts and never, never finish. The, the audios dwindle away into you know, oblivion, you know, and they never finish the book of Acts. Um, so uh, I, I hope that we will, you know, Lord willing, we will, and appreciate y'all being patient through it. Uh, but it, it's, it's still good. You know, I hope to go a lot faster, but every time I open up the next chapter, it's like, man, there's so much here. I can't just, I can't bring myself to just blow over it. So Acts chapter 18, um, where we're at here in, in the book of Acts, we're really knee-deep in the very mi- in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey. We're in his second of three missionary journeys. And so if you remember, the second missionary journey started off from Paul's church in Antioch. Um, it was Paul and Silas who left Antioch in Syria, and they made their way through all the, the southern Galatian churches, those, those first churches that Paul and Silas planted on the first missionary journey. They made it all the way through Asia Minor. God directed them through Asia Minor, and they made it all the way to Macedonia. And Macedonia is where those, those churches were. Many of you will recognize Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, these really... Uh, well-known and famous churches is, is where they've already taken the gospel. Today, uh, the Apostle Paul is going to arrive in another very famous city, and that's the city of Corinth. And so the city of Corinth is famous, and it's very, it should be very familiar to us. Why, why should the city of Corinth be familiar to us? And what's going on there? Huh? A lot of bad stuff going on? Yeah, what else? Because we're in, that's, yeah, the, the books, First and Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians that we've been in really since the inception of our church, this is that church that, that Paul uh, is going to begin here and Paul's going to found. Yeah, that's right. So Corinth kind of has a special place for, for me and for us because we've been studying it for so long. Uh, but it's good to get the background here to see how this church is, is founded. Um, you know, we've gone through a lot of these other cities, Philippi, Thessalonica, these other cities that have had uh, epistles written to them. And, you know, we would be in Acts forever if we, kind of, if we really cross-referenced everything in the epistles into the book of Acts. You know, I just can't do all that like I'd like to. Uh, but, yeah, these, these cities that we're reading about are the very cities that, that Paul's going to write back to and write his epistles to. So all of that's interesting as we get just the background and the founding of these churches. So... Let's dive in. Acts chapter 18, verse 1, it starts off saying, After these things, and the after these things is referencing what we looked at last week, Paul's preaching in Athens and the Areopagus. So he says, After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And so as Paul comes into Corinth, he meets this this couple, and it says the couple are there in Corinth because Claudius had commanded that all the Jews must leave Rome. Uh, This 
the emperor Claudius, that's who it is, the emperor over uh, the whole Roman Empire, he commanded all the Jews to leave Rome in A.D. 49. Um, it, it's, it's, this is one of those markers in the, in the book of Acts that we can match up to just uh, world history and secular history and know like where we are in time frame. And so Claudius expelled all the Jews and the Christians from Rome in A.D. 49. So this is one of the markers all the commentators use to, to know where we are in history in the book of Acts. So this has already happened. He, he, uh, he expelled all the Jews from Rome. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla left Rome and came here to Corinth. So we're somewhere around 50 to 51 A.D. in the book of Acts, if, if you guys like to try to track that in your minds. Um, so um, it says that Paul came to them. He came to this couple. And verse 3 says, And because he was of the same trade... He stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So what we have here is Paul coming into the city of Corinth. Um, he's actually coming to the city by himself. He comes into the city by himself, and he meets this couple named Aquila and Priscilla. Many of you probably recognize them and recognize their name. Um, he actually stays. He ends up living uh, with this couple. This couple is going to be very important to the Apostle Paul. This couple is going to be very important to the, to the very early church. And uh, Paul hits it off with this couple, not simply because they're, they're all Christians, but the text tells us here that they have the same trade, that they're all tent makers. And so it's just interesting for me to see the great Apostle Paul, the, the great theologian that we know, uh, we see him here working, working with his hands. He's a tent maker. He's a tent maker. So here we have this instance where our great theologian and great apostle, great missionary, the Apostle Paul, found the necessity um, to labor, to work with his hands. And so just as I came across this, I thought it might be just a helpful uh, time and place to do just a little excursion on uh, Paul's doctrine of, of work and money. Uh, when it comes to the gospel minister and the gospel ministry. And so the first text that always comes to my mind, if you want to turn there, it's in 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5 here, we're going to see Paul talk about his, um, his teaching and his, and his theology and doctrine on uh, money when it comes to, to elders and, and the minister. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 Paul says this, Paul says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And so Paul says there's double honor for those who, who excel and spend their time and work hard at preaching and teaching. This double honor is not just simply speaking of a, of a double uh, respect, um, which is also true for those who spend time working and in, in the Word of God and preaching, uh, but it goes farther than that because here in the context, the Apostle Paul is speaking of actually like a financial support and a financial honor that we're to give to those um, who preach and teach. And so and we know that because of the context. Look at the next verse, verse 18, 1 Timothy 5:18. Paul goes on to say, For the Scriptures say, You shall not muzzle the ox while he, was, while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages, Meaning, the minister whose work is the word should get paid from that work. It's just it's natural. It's natural for the, 
for the, the minister whose work is the word to get paid for that work. And so now what we see here in the book of Acts as Paul comes to Corinth by himself is we see that there's, and we also see in Paul's other letters, that there's a time that Paul did not avail himself of this right that he had to get paid from, the, from his, his work in, in the word of God. Um, what are maybe some instances that come to mind where the Apostle Paul uh, forbade this, this right that he had to get paid. Does anybody remember any circ- other circumstances where the Apostle Paul, although he says he has the right to get paid, um, doesn't actually take money from a church? Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. Does anybody remember why? What was Paul's reasoning there in Second Corinthians? Why he didn't take money from the church? You remember? Well, I mean, part of it had opposition from people <clears throat> thinking, you know, that he would be doing it out of a wrong motive. Exactly. So. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. There was these there was these teachers in Corinth who were um, making accusations against the Apostle Paul of, of financial impropriety and these types of things. And so Paul said, uh, because of that, because the the church in Corinth was stumbling over this and, and these accusations, he actually would not take any money whatsoever from the church, so that he would just remove the stumbling block whatsoever. So there would be no opportunity for, for these um, in the church who were basically just naysaying his ministry. Uh, he took that stumbling block completely out of the way. Yeah, that's, that's very good. That's, that, that's the reason there in 2 Corinthians. And then so here in the book of Acts we find out that as he comes to Corinth by himself, obviously he just needed the money. So, I mean, there really wasn't an option it seemed like. Um, he came to Corinth alone and he needed the money so he worked with his hands. Um, yes, sir. Well, were you going to touch on Thessalonians? Um, what, what aspect of Thessalonians? Well, just as an answer to that question, um, mm-hmm. I didn't want to steal your thunder, but... No, go ahead. No, I don't have Thessalonians on well, here. With the Thessalonian church, you know, he paid for a different reason. Mm-hmm. He, he didn't, you know, he, he worked with his own hands night and day mm-hmm. to be an example to them because the church right. was having a problem with people that wouldn't work. Good. So it's like almost like he made himself an example to those lazy people in the church that just wouldn't go to work. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that one. Look, you know, if I work with my own hands night and day, you know, yep. you should work too. Yeah, so. that's another good example there. Yeah, forgot about that one. Yeah, okay, so... Um, so what, what a lot of people do with this reality that Paul didn't take money from Corinth, he didn't take money from the Thessalonians, what a lot of people do is they kind of set this up in their mind as like, well, the, the more godly approach for, for a pastor, right? Well, if Paul didn't take money from Corinth and, Corinth and, and Thessalonica, um, you know, maybe that's what a real godly minister should do is not take money from the churches. You know, the elder should be working just like all of us, you know. He shouldn't be able to just kick back and study all day. Um, but notice here, even in our text in Acts chapter 18, notice what Paul does when Timothy and Silas finally come to him with financial support. And we know they come to him with financial support from 2 Corinthians 11:9. but notice what Paul does here when they show up with, with money for him. It says, but when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, as I said, we know he brought, they brought money and funds with them, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So there we see that when Paul had the ability financially to fully devote himself to the word of God, that's what he did. Uh, Paul was not ashamed to leave uh, manual labor 
to completely give himself to the word of God. Um, you know, those who have taught and have preached, you'll know that um, I would say pretty much that's the rule that it's a more strenuous job, a more difficult job, a more heavy task of handling the word of God than it is just to do manual labor. So it's no small thing to, to not uh, do manual labor for the word of God. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's a good thing. It's, it's right. That's what Paul teaches, that it's good for a church to support uh, the minister who, who does the preaching and teaching. You know, we call it like a preaching elder, Pastor Emilio. That's, you know, he's fully devoted to studying and preparing and, and ministering the Word of God to us, and we want to have him uh, fully supported so that he can do that um, because that's his gift. That's what he needs to be devoting his time to. So and we see the Apostle Paul when he's financial, financially able to fully devote himself to the Word of God. And even though the great Apostle Paul does that, he's fully devoted to proving that Jesus is the Christ in the, in the synagogues. He's preaching to these Jews. Verse 6 shows us that there still remains a veil. Even though the Apostle Paul is teaching them, there still remains a, a, a veil over their eyes. Because verse 6 says uh, that they resisted and they blasphemed. And look what Paul does. It says, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own, head, your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. So the Apostle Paul's been attempting again to minister as he always does in the synagogues. Um, the Jews, they were blaspheming. They're resisting. And Paul just simply follows the example that Jesus gave to his disciples um, as he sent out the 70. He told them, you know, dust, knock the dust off of your sandals. If any city that doesn't receive you, any town, any, any house that doesn't receive the gospel and therefore doesn't receive me, dust, knock the dust off of your, of your sandals and go on. Paul does the same thing here uh, with these Jews. Uh, but, but obviously it's important to remember, and we'll even see it today as we go on, um, as Paul dusts off the, uh, the dust here of his garments and, and shakes out his garments, He's still, going to consider, uh, uh, he's still going to minister to Jews. This is, like, this is not a once-for-all statement that Paul's going to the Gentiles and never going to preach the gospel to Jews. We'll see it even today. Um, so here this is like a, just a very locally directed um, statement that Paul makes to these Jews as, as they're so hardened to the gospel. Um, he's going to go to the Gentiles there in the city of Corinth. Uh, most of the Jews d don't receive the gospel here in Corinth. And... Uh, so Paul shakes off his garments, and I don't know, it, it seems humorous to me. Read verse 7, because I have in my mind how this all went down in the synagogues. You know, Paul's preaching Christ. They're resisting and blaspheming, and he's shaking off his garments. He's storming out of there. But look what, look what it says. It says, then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. You know, so I don't know why that seems... You know, Paul's storming out. I'm going to the Gentiles. He just walks next door, you know, to another... I don't know, I, I actually have Acts, the video uh, of Acts. Y'all have those? And it just, it seems funny there too. You know, it's, I'm going to the Gentiles walk next door. Okay. So, um, so verse 8 says this, though, that's interesting. It says, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, the leader of the synagogue believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Uh, so God did use Paul's preaching like I said, most resisted, most blasphemed. God did use Paul's preaching to save even one of the synagogue leaders there in Corinth. 
amidst all of the resistance, all of the blaspheming. And for me, this really shows that uh, the reality that God uh, can save whoever he wants. You know, we shouldn't underestimate uh, people's situations or any pressure that's around them, you know, or any outside influences on them. You know, this guy was a synagogue leader. He would have had all the pressure in the world to not listen to the Apostle Paul, to not go with the flow, you know, when, when all of these Jews are, are, uh, are fighting Paul's message. But uh, the Spirit of God saved this man, a leader of the very synagogue there in Corinth. You know, the text that came to my mind is that this is why Paul says that we're to pray for kings and for all who are in authority over us. We're even to pray for all of those, you know, President Obama. We're even to pray for him. The text goes on to say God wants all, all, all men to be saved, all kinds of men, even these men we would never imagine to receive the gospel. We should not underestimate the power of the Spirit to save um, anyone, you know. So that, I just see that evident here is that the leader in the synagogue actually is, is uh, brought to faith through Paul's preaching. Um, and, and because there's so much resistance in Corinth here, um, Paul might have been, as many oftentimes he has been, tempted in, to move on and to leave Corinth. But look what the Lord says to him here in verse 9. The Lord actually speaks to Paul as he, as he ought to do. Verse 9 says, And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer. Meaning, Paul was afraid. That's just interesting to me. Well, Paul admits that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, that he came to Corinth with much fear and trembling. You know, um, The apostle Paul was afraid in Corinth. There was so much resistance. But the Lord says, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. God says to Paul, keep, going, keep speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you. No man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So, Paul instructs Paul to keep on preaching in Corinth despite all of the, uh, all of the onslaught and opposition. He, he instructs Paul to keep on teaching in Corinth, to not be silent for two reasons. First, uh, God tells Paul that he is with him. I am with you, Paul. Keep on preaching. Nobody's going to harm me. I'm with you. Um, that in itself is a, is a very reassuring promise. You know, God gave the same promise to Joshua as Joshua was going out to fight all these battles and to gain the promised land, the same promise. I, I'm with you. I'm with you. Just that assurance that he has that I am with you. Actually, in, in Hebrews chapter 13, we are given that same promise to encourage us in the faith that God is with you. You know, that, that I, I think I've said it before. I know that I have. Uh, but that, that, that promise of God has always stuck with me. I remember even uh, years ago when Pastor Emilio um, just, he didn't even reference the text, but I remember even the whole discussion, the whole discussion he was preaching and he was talking about how hard it is to share the gospel with your family and, and, and when you're at work to confront people when they're blaspheming the name of God. But I just remember him encouraging us by saying, uh, don't be afraid, speak up, God is with you. Just that reality is enough. I mean, if God is with you, you know, just like the text said, who, who can be against you? If God is for you, there's all fear um, really should go away if, if you believe that God is with you and on your side. And so here Paul knew for sure, he had direct revelation from God, that his, God's will was to keep on preaching, keep on speaking. And so Paul found comfort 
in the fact that God is with them. Now, secondly, and, and of equal interest, here it, we also see the second reason that we see the sovereignty of God being worked out in Paul's being instructed to continue to speak the gospel in Corinth because uh, it says here that the Lord has many people in that city. God's people are in the city of Corinth. You know, that, that language of being God's people, um, just that language, that phraseology is, is the same language, same phraseology that the word the laos of people, the, 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 the laos of God, God's people, that's the Septuagint translation of, of God speaking of his covenant people Israel in the Septuagint, same, same phraseology. But now God's saying this, God's calling uh, this city which is predominantly Gentile, He's calling them his people. Keep preaching, Paul. Um, there's Gentiles. My people are, are going to be brought into the people of God. I just saw this as just being another way that, that, that Jesus is working out what he said in John chapter 10. Listen to what he said in John chapter 10. He's speaking to his disciples. He said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them in also. They will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. The people of God are, are one flock now, Jew, Gentile, one flock, right? And just, we see this being worked out. So to even take it another step, what's even more interesting here, um, if you haven't noticed already, is that um, these Gentiles who God is calling his people, they've not even actually been saved yet. They haven't even heard the gospel, right? God's saying he has people in the city of Corinth, so keep on preaching the gospel, Paul. So um, in what sense? Can these Gentiles who have not been saved, have not heard the gospel, how can they be called God's people if, if they haven't even heard the gospel yet? Does anybody want to take a stab, maybe except for Pastor Emilio, um, take a stab at articulating what, what the reality here is that God's speaking of? How does he have people in that city who have yet to be saved? What does he mean um, by that language? Well, he set aside a certain people or a number of people and using Paul as the means in which to bring those people to himself. And right. he does so through the preaching of Paul. Amen. Yeah. Yeah, what's, what's some other language that would describe maybe these, the people of God that have yet heard well, the that, gospel? Uh, the elect. I mean, that, yeah. Yeah, the elect. That's right. Yeah, I think that's exactly what God's saying. I have my elect people in this city. Go preach the gospel to them so that they can be brought in to the fold. Right? It's just, it's talking about... Uh, this union with Christ that these people have um, in the mind of God. It's not in time yet. They have not heard the gospel. But in the mind of God, these people are as good as saved. And the gospel is going to go to them, and they will be saved. And exactly as Jason said, um, the means by which God brings in his elect people is by the preaching of the word. And that's why Paul had to continue preaching. The gospel had to be taken to them so that they could be saved. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. Um, so, let's pick up. Is there any questions on that? Well, any, anybody God, ever wondered God, about that? God doesn't tell Paul who they are. True. You know, it's just kind of the same with us. You know, we know there's elect out there, but we don't know who they are. God right. didn't tell Paul who they were, and he's not going to tell us who they are. Right. You know? Yeah. Just keep on preaching. You know, I'm not telling you exactly and which house Jesus, to go into. I mean, even Jesus, who knew, I mean, he knew who they were still preached to all. Interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah, Jesus knew who were who were his. There's no case for hyper Calvinism. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Very good. So, um, let's pick up now. Uh, we're in Acts chapter 18, verse 18. And uh, let's see how Paul wraps up here his second missionary journey. That's what we've been looking at, Paul's second missionary journey. Let's see how he wraps it up. Verse 18 says, Paul, having remained many days longer, many days longer, I don't know if, if you remember, verse 11 said that Paul had been in Corinth for a year and a half already at this point, which is by far the longest the Apostle Paul has ministered in any city. You know, Paul has been in Corinth. Um, I think that's why we see just so much, you know, in the book, in the in First and Second Corinthians, we see so much personal information about the Apostle Paul with this congregation. He has so much intimate knowledge of them. It's because he was in their midst for a year and a half. Um, so Paul stayed in Corinth for many days longer. Then he took leave of the brethren and put out for Syria. Paul sets out um, to sail for Syria. Now, what city is Paul interested in getting uh, getting to in, in the region of Syria. Does anybody remember what city is, would be significant to the Apostle Paul in Syria? Going once, going twice. Well, um, his home church, Antioch. He's going home. As I said, he's wrapping up his second missionary journey here. Um, Antioch, Syria is where Paul's headed. The text tells us that with him were Priscilla and Aquila. Remember that couple that he met, those Christian believers in Corinth, he actually takes this couple with him. And uh, just a side note, because Luke doesn't mention it here, but obviously Timothy and Silas uh, are left in Corinth to minister there to the church in Corinth. Paul leaves Timothy and Silas there. Uh, so the text goes on to say in Centraea, he had his hair cut for he was keeping a vow. Verse 19 says they came to Ephesus, another city we should recognize, right? We have the letter to the Ephesians, to this church. Verse 19 says they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. He left the couple there, Aquila and Priscilla. And Paul himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Verse 20 says, and when they asked him to stay for a longer time, Paul did not consent. But taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills, he set sail from Ephesus. Verse 22 says, And when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and he greeted the church and went down to Antioch. And so the city located very near to the, the city port of Caesarea is Jerusalem. And that's the language that's always used when you go up to the church in Jerusalem. He went up to the church and then we returned home to Antioch. Um, so, so Paul makes it home to his home church in Antioch. Uh, but he stops by Jerusalem. What could have been some of the motivation for Paul stopping by uh, Jerusalem on his way home? I mean, just naturally, I think he just, you know, wanted to see the apostles, wanted to see the brethren there, wanted to minister just as he's been uh, doing to all the churches that he's been going to. Every time uh, he talks about Paul going back to Jerusalem, he always talks about uh, he always tells them about all the wonders that God has been doing amongst the Gentiles. And so he would have wanted to inform uh, the home church there of what, what all was going on with the spread of the gospel in all of the, in all of the world. Uh, but there's also an additional note here, which, which is kind of an interesting part of the text that I just read, 
Did you notice that Paul had taken a vow? The Apostle Paul had taken a vow, and that was another motivation to go to Jerusalem because, um, as most commentators believe, Paul took a Nazarite vow, a Nazarite vow, which was probably um, a, a, a consequence or, or um, an effect of Paul's having been protector. Remember, Paul, uh, God told Paul in Corinth, uh, remain there. No one will harm you. I'll protect you. No man will touch you to harm you. The Nazarite vow was also uh, was, was often taken out of thanksgiving. And, and so a lot uh, assume, really, that Paul took this Nazarite vow because of God's uh, protection of him in Corinth. And out of thanksgiving, he takes this Nazarite vow, which if you read number six, which describes the Nazarite vow, um, that that vow is always completed by the offering of a sacrifice in Jerusalem. So Paul would have had to go through Jerusalem to to offer the sacrifice for this vow that he made out of thanksgiving to God. And with that, um, now we begin Paul's third missionary journey. The third missionary journey. Um, as I said, Paul's back home at his home church in Antioch. You can imagine the homecoming for the Apostle Paul. You can imagine how that, uh, how that church rejoiced at his actually making it back alive, first of all. And second of all, to hear just how much the Spirit was blessing his missions and, and what all was going on. Uh, but being who the Apostle Paul is, being what his calling was, the Apostle Paul does not stay long at, at his home church. He sets sail again for what is now going to be his third and, and actually is going to end up being his very last missionary journey. That's what's beginning here in verse 23, is his third and his very last missionary journey. Acts chapter 18, verse 23 says, And having spent some time there, that's in reference to his home church in Antioch, he left, and he passed successively through the Galatian region in Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. This is where Paul's missionary journeys always begin. He takes off back through Galatia, southern Galatia, strengthening all the churches that, that he and, uh, and Barnabas originally planted. The apostle Paul, you know, he has that pastoral heart. He keeps checking in on the churches. Uh, just, just strengthening them and, uh, and pastoring them. Um, and so while Paul is ministering in Galatia, there's many churches there by now. This is his third missionary journey and third time through that area. Uh, Paul's going to be there ministering in Galatia. Luke now in the book of Acts is going to really leave Paul, and he's going he's to uh, return to the city of Ephesus in his discussion. Remember the city of Ephesus is where he left the couple, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, He's going to now focus on them and what's going in Ephesus. And uh, here he's going to introduce another key figure in the life of the early church, a man named Apollos. Verse 24, Luke's going to introduce us to this man. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus. And he was mighty in the scriptures. Just listen to this description of this man, Apollos. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So this man, Apollos here, this man who comes to Ephesus where the, the couple is, um, is a very interesting figure. Let me just recap again the description of this man 
Um, first, I just kind of pulled out all of his, uh, the detail of his background. It says that he's a Jew from Alexandria. Does anybody know where Alexandria is? Egypt. That's right. Alexandria is in Egypt. It's almost like Athens in that it's a city of great prominence when it comes to learning, or was at least a great city when it comes to, to learning. There was that great library there in Alexandria at one point. Um, Alexandria, Egypt, um, interestingly enough, is where the, the Septuagint was translated into Greek. There was, there was many Jews there, um, Greek-speaking Jews in Alexandria, Egypt, and that's where the Septuagint was actually uh, translated. Um, so Alexandria is a, is a place where uh, there would have been great learning given to Apollos. It's, it's, it's probably why he was an eloquent man. He would have been trained in public speaking and, and these types of things. Um, second to note in his description was, I, I just noticed how often that, the, that his zeal, that Luke recorded his zeal, verse 25 said he was fervent in spirit. Verse 26 says he was speaking out boldly in the synagogues. That's Apollos. But third and most interesting is Luke's description of, of Apollos' theological background. It's very interesting. Verse 24 said uh, he was mighty in the scriptures. Verse 25 said he was instructed in the way of the Lord, and he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. Right, all those are very good things. Now it says, though, uh, but he was only acquainted with the baptism of John. That's very interesting. You know, Apollos' theology was not bad uh, by any means. It was just simply incomplete. He only knew of uh, the baptism of John so obviously he was yet to, to know a lot. He was, yet to, he was just limited in what he had heard as far as all that Jesus Christ had accomplished, all that Jesus Christ had done. You know, everybody speculates that you read. We don't know how much he knew, how much he didn't know. Um, but it is, it is um, important to note that as this couple meets him, uh, they don't rebaptize him. He was baptized at the baptism of John. He knew of Jesus Christ. Um, he was teaching accurately the things of Jesus Christ that he knew about, uh, but he, so he was a believer. He, he didn't need to be rebaptized, which I know because later on we're going to meet some people who had another very limited knowledge but were baptized again, obviously because they actually got saved. Uh, but this was a real believer with zeal for the Lord who just needed to be brought along further in all the things of Jesus and just understanding the gospel more and what Jesus had done and that's just what this couple does for this man. The text tells us Priscilla and Aquila, um, when they heard his preaching, um, that they helped him out in his, in his doctrine, his theology, and, what, and, and told him what Jesus had done. But what I think is so interesting is notice how they do it. Verse 26b, second part of verse 26 says, But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Right, it's interesting that, that Luke notes how they um, helped this brother in his, in his theology. Since they took him aside, they didn't just yell out, you know, as he was preaching, you know, get out, you're misleading the people, you know, nothing like that. They actually took this brother aside, and, and just it seemed that they would have respectfully, you know, ministered to him and, and tried to show him the way of God more accurately, you know. And I think it's just a great example for us on, on how we can likewise minister to each other. You know, very respectfully, take a brother aside. You know, don't raise your hand in Pastor Emilio's sermons, you know, and 
try to correct him. You know, they, they didn't do something like that. You know, they took him aside and brought him along. You know, I know how it is when us like we hear somebody open air preach or something like that. It just you know sounds incomplete to us. Maybe they're not saying something that we normally say. You know, oh, you didn't miss in the resurrection. You didn't say the resurrection. Get down. You know, that's not what they did. They took him aside and and ministered to him and helped him. And so I think what we also see in this text is not only did they minister to him correctly, this brother received the admonition. That's what seems like what, what happens. So we see a good example of both sides. Um, Apollos receiving this teaching, because look what, look what we go on to see in verse 27. Priscilla and Aquila actually support this brother's ministry as he goes on. Verse 27 says, And when, it, and when he, as Apollos, wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So that's Apollos. Um, he obviously received the correction. The church was pleased with, with the theology that he gained, and he went on to minister and continued to preach and was very eloquent. The Lord was blessing him. It says he was powerfully reviewing the Jews in public. You know, it's just another text that comes in handy, you know, when a lot of people, I mean, I should have been pointing these out more and more as we gone through the book of Acts, you know, but they're always in the, in the streets reasoning and dialoguing and debating with whoever seems to be there. Here, you know, um, Apollos is debating the Jews in public, powerfully refuting them. You know, to go out on the streets and to go out in the marketplace and to preach the gospel and to share with people and to reason with them is not out of the ordinary. That's the apostolic um, way of doing it. You know, it's not strange to anybody who's actually familiar with, you know, how the Bible presents the spread of the gospel. You know, we just get a lot of heartache from people when we go out, you know, and try to share the gospel the way we do in public. But, I mean, it's... There's too many places to point to in the book of Acts where that's exactly what the apostles is, exactly what Jesus did, you know. So I like to see that, that we're doing the same thing that they did. Um, so, so I mentioned how uh, the apostle Paul met this man, Apollos, who was, who was not all the way um, where he needed to be in his knowledge of Christ. And so uh, we, have, we have time. Let's, let's jump in here to the, bit, the, the very beginning of chapter 19, because it, it's fitting because we have a, almost a similar situation of some, some men who do not have enough knowledge of Christ and what he's done. And so here we, we, we can see um, what, how they are dealt with um, by the Apostle Paul. Uh, chapter 19, verse 1 said, It happened while Apollos was at Corinth. That, so we're returning back to Paul here. Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. Okay, so first it's interesting that, that Luke does use the phrase, he calls them disciples, uh, but, but as we'll see, this is most likely just a very generous um, approach and description to these men, because as Paul meets these men, he's really going really to have to dig in and, and poke around a little bit to dig a little deeper into the reality of whether these guys really are disciples in a salvific way. Um, so notice what Paul says to these disciples, verse 2. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And so if you were to ask that question, I don't know if you ever have even asked anybody that question, you know, when you're trying to determine whether they're a Christian or not, but 
Um, that would that have been a red flag for you? You know, if you go to speak about the Holy Spirit, we haven't even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. You know, it's kind of it's kind of strange. It's a hard text because you know Luke calls them disciples, so you assume that they're Christians. But how could any real disciple not be aware that there's the Holy Spirit? You know, I mean, the entire Old Testament talks about the Holy Spirit all over the place. The very first verses of Genesis, you know. Um, it says that they're disciples of John the Baptist. Um, did John the Baptist ever say anything about the Holy Spirit? You know, should they have been aware through the preaching of John the Baptist that there was a Holy Spirit? I want to say no because the Holy Spirit hadn't came yet because Christ had it. Wow, that's a good text. Yeah, I'm, going to quote, I'm going to quote that text. That could be the other thing that's going on here. That's the other side of it. Either they're... Either they're not really disciples because they have no clue about the Holy Spirit. I mean, how much knowledge you can have uh, about God if you don't even know that there is a Holy Spirit? Because John did teach it. You know, John's the one who said, I baptize you with water. One comes after me who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And they're the first words out of John's mouth, really, that are recorded for us. So um, either these are not real disciples that have no clue about really anything about God, or um, there's another text that, that Brother Juan just quoted. Let's turn there. John chapter 7, verse 39. This is the other possibility that's going on with these, with these guys here. Um, John 7, 39 says this, But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those believed in him who were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified, right? So the same language is used in the book of John of the Spirit not being yet, not being yet given. Of course, the Holy Spirit was there in another sense, but it's quite possible that these uh, disciples, that's what they meant, that the Spirit, they didn't even heard that the Spirit had been given yet. You know, they hadn't heard of everything that had come um, after John's teaching of the coming Messiah. They hadn't heard of of the death, resurrection, and, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. They, they were unaware of these things, right? So that, that's very good. That, that is the other option there as far as what was going on. But either way, there's still much ignorance with these men. They still obviously need to be brought along farther into what all happened, what all Jesus did, what all um, Jesus did through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Paul goes on to ask him, look at verse 3. He, he's still inquiring into these guys to see where they're at. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, Jesus. And so what it seems that Paul is telling them is, okay, well, if you were baptized, in uh, the baptism of John, you would know that the baptism of John was actually, actually a preparation for someone. It was a preparation for the coming Messiah, for Jesus. You know, so it's, it's not just enough to, be bat- to take a baptism of repentance. You know, a lot of people, uh, baptism of repentance was just a, a cleansing yourself for the coming one, for the coming Messiah. Uh, but if you weren't baptized in faith, in hopes of that coming Messiah, if you didn't know about the coming Messiah, um, if you just took a baptism of repentance in general, that's not enough. Your baptism must be um, in reference to Jesus. And so, as Paul explained this to them, 
as John, uh, verse 5 says, when they heard this, then they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so here, um, just with this instance, I see uh, Paul not simply just accepting, you know, like a very uh, surface level profession. You know, there's nothing wrong with digging in a little bit to try to, especially when you first meet somebody, you know, a lot of times we just kind of take people's word, you know, oh, you're a Christian, good brother, you know, like this fellowship. But here we see the Apostle Paul, like, out of care for their souls, he digs in a little bit. You know, he asks some probing questions to them, like, are you really saved? You know, have you even heard of the Holy Spirit? You know, these types of things. And, and at the end of the day, he must bring them all the way to Jesus Christ. They had done some religious things, some good things, even things that the Bible had taught, but they had not been brought all the way to Jesus. And that's what the Apostle Paul um, did, did with them. Uh, another interesting verse, uh, verse 6 says, Now when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying, and there was uh, in all about 12, 12 men. And so here in verse 6, what we have is, is really the last mention of, of this event of, of believers speaking in tongues at their conversion. You know, what, was the, what were the first three instances, can anybody remember, that we saw this happen in the book of Acts? Because it seems to be happening at very significant events. It's not just random. It doesn't seem very random. You know, when do we see this, this pouring out of the Spirit in such a way on believers that they speak in tongues? They were gathered at Antioch. That's the first time. What's significant about um, well, Antioch or Jerusalem? Well, I think the first was at Antioch, I believe. Okay, so, well, I'm referring, yeah, I'm referring first to Pentecost. It would be the first time, right? That in Jerusalem, what's significant about that? Just because there's not much time, I'll just remind you of Acts 1.8. You know, Jesus said, um, you know, you're going to be my witnesses. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the outermost parts of the earth. Right? We almost saw, like, the Spirit being poured out with this uh, manifestation of the, the, the speaking in tongues and prophesying these sorts of things um, as the gospel went to those, those different places. At Pentecost, when the gospel went out in Jerusalem, tongues. Um, Samaria, uh, Judea and Samaria, you know, when Peter, uh, uh, remember the, who all was there? The sorcerer was there, and, and some people got saved in Samaria. Again, tongues, a manifestation of the Spirit through prophesying in tongues. Um, the outermost, what was the occasion where we saw tongues with the first Gentile? Anybody remember who the first Gentile was to get saved? Uh, Cornelius. That's right, Cornelius. Yeah. And so I really think those were kind of high points as the gospel spread, as Jesus said it would, to these different areas. And, and there you see the confirmation um, through, the spirit, uh, through the pouring out of the Spirit in these ways that that was in fact happening, that God was in fact um, not only saving Jews, but he was saving Samarians, not only Samarians, but Gentiles. And God's confirming those things, not only to the people who are getting saved, but also to the apostles themselves. God was confirming that he was saving these, these other people groups. And so that, it still leaves this fourth instance kind of open. Well, why did, why did this happen here? Um, it could be another extension of that last um, place that the gospel is going to go. You know, the gospel is going to go, they're going to be the witnesses for Jesus to the outermost parts of the world. Um, you know, Cornelius was the first real Gentile. Cornelius was also a God-fearer, you know, so he wasn't... Um, 
as foreign of a Gentile as many would be. You know, these men are, are found in Ephesus, nowhere near uh, Jerusalem. They're not, for, for all we can tell, they're not necessarily God-fearers. They did have, so they heard something about John's baptism, obviously, but um, they were very, very distant and ignorant to really the, the teachings of God. And so this may have been another instance where God poured out his spirit, um, confirming that even these in Ephesus were, in fact, um, being saved. Yes, sir? Uh, if I could just uh, point out maybe that uh, another reason why you know, this probably took place was, mm-hmm. you know, like you said, it's happening at pivotal times, you know, in, in redemptive history. Yep. And so this is like maybe the the final word on John's ministry, mm. you know, because there was a, there was a transition during Jesus' ministry from, you know, where the disciples of John became the disciples of Christ. Right. You know, so it's almost like these disciples of John somehow were left over, and they didn't apparently weren't exposed to the ministry of Jesus. So uh, right. perhaps they came prior to Jesus coming, and then they left and never heard of Jesus or. Uh, the promise of the Spirit being given. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. here it's almost like God is pointing out the redemption has moved on, you know. Yeah. No longer in that transition of John. I think so. Yeah. That's good. You should have read an article or something like that. Nobody, <laughs> nobody mentioned that. Yeah. That, is, that, is, that is good. There was a definitely, I mean, that's what we're seeing in the book of Acts mm-hmm. is the transition you know, the transition from Old Covenant into the preparation of John's ministry to the full New Covenant revelation of Jesus Christ. Chris, do you have some? I have a question. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we know that it wasn't typical for a believer during this first century to experience this? Right. Well, I got, even, if, yeah. even if we're of a cessational view or, you know, or whatever you want to call that, Right. To still, you know, acknowledge that perhaps this was a common thing in this time. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's not mentioned commonly. Like I said, like it's only mentioned four times in the Book of Acts, mm-hmm. and every time it is mentioned, it seems to be at these very pivotal times in redemptive history. I'm not saying it didn't happen elsewhere. I think it probably did in Corinth. You know, you talk about. Right. I mean, um, Luke's obviously a, a finite person. He's at one place at a time. So, right. You know, he's, he's just charting the. Yeah. The yeah. There's just no. So I would say, yeah, there's just no emphasis on it, you know, for the whole church everywhere, you know, which most people who um, are always looking for that, that's a great emphasis to them. Well, did you speak in tongues or not? Well, that's no emphasis in the book of Acts. I mean, it happens at certain times for certain points, but, you know, they're not always looking for tongues to confirm whether somebody's saved. That's just not there, you know. So it, 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 I'm sure it did happen elsewhere. We know in, the, in Corinth especially from the book of Corinthians that it definitely happened. I mean, it was happening. So, yeah, but I think it is important to note why Luke even notes when it does happen. It's not to verify necessarily that, every, that people are getting converted. Anybody, it's for redemptive purposes that, that this happens. So, yeah, that's good. We've got we to gotta wrap up. Um, that's a very pertinent question, I think, you know, these days. So, um, you know, then I just again wanted to, to thank everybody for just being faithful through the book of Acts. You know, what I mean, it is a journey. You know, like I said, uh, for some of you who aren't here, you know, when I started off studying the Book of Acts, I mean, it was funny how many people started teaching the Book of Acts and started recording sermons in Sunday schools that I like, I like to listen to on MP3 player. And it's funny how many just never finished. Very few make it all the way through the Book of Acts. You know, so uh, we're going to try to be some trendsetters here. But um, 
Let's pray and we'll go to worship.